Welcome to Cream of Caroline, the least exclusive casserole lifestyle podcast in America. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Today's episode took me back to my South Georgia roots. I made a big old pot of Brunswick stew for my fellow Georgia native, Mavis J. Sanders, and I took a field trip to my hometown of Baxley, Georgia and 341 Antiques, where I got a lesson in Pyrex history and picked up a fresh set of vintage bakeware. Mavis J and I talked a little about food nostalgia, and you will hear some accents slip through, but mostly we discussed food injustice in America and her work to fight it at Brownsville Culinary Community Center. Welcome to episode eight. It's going to be creamy. What's in the oven? Nothing. We are stove top today for Brunswick stew, whose recipe you can find on page 123 of the 1961 Better Homes and Gardens Casserole Cookbook, and of course on Instagram at Cream of Caroline. And for anyone who knows Brunswick stew, it is not a casserole, but a one-pot meal uh, whose origins are both claimed by a county in Virginia and a city in South Georgia on the coast. Plus, all of the ingredients are at their peak right now in New York City farmer's markets, and that's why I decided to include it on the roster. Uh, For the recipe, you poach a whole chicken and one diced onion in four cups water that's been seasoned with a tablespoon of salt. The chicken takes about an hour to cook, at which point I remove it from the stew, cool slightly, and pull the meat. I then return the bones and skin back to the pot, cover, and simmer gently for two hours to get that stock nice and gelatinous. Strain out the bones, and if you are cooking the stew immediately, you add the shredded chicken back to the pot, along with two cups fresh corn, one to two cups lima beans, frozen or fresh, one pound peeled, seeded, and diced tomatoes. The book use can, but girl, use fresh ones if you've got them, uh, and then add to that a healthy heaping cup of sliced okra. Season with salt and pepper, cook that for an hour. This recipe was different from the versions I ate growing up in South Georgia, but I'm not gonna lie, I loved it even more. Some of the ones that I ate as a kid had maybe a whole bottle of barbecue sauce thrown in or some ketchup for seasoning. They could have included some pulled pork, potatoes for thickening versus the okra, but this pot was so clean and refreshing, it tasted like a hot bowl of summer. That's what's on the stove today. Casseroles in the news. No one is safe now, not even casserole. There are two hash brown casserole bandits loose in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's right, the owners of Purple Daisy Barbecue have twice been the victim of break-ins. And on the thieves' second hit, they stole tinfoil, hash brown casserole, and pretty much everything that wasn't nailed down. Video surveillance shows the duo fleeing the scene in a 2000-era Honda Odyssey. If you know them or have any information that might lead to an arrest, please contact the Chattanooga Police Department. And in the meantime, hide your wife, hide your kids, and hide your Pyrex. That's your casseroles in the news. All right, listeners, we have Mavis J. Sanders in the house this morning. (laughs) She is the operations director of Brownsville Culinary Community Center, an amazing nonprofit in Brooklyn. From henceforward, we'll call it 
B triple B triple C. B triple C is great. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. And she is a fellow Georgia grown lady. Yeah. Ain't nothing like a Georgia girl. Uh, from Albany. Al. Do you do Albany or Albany? How is what's your pronunciation? I'm Albany. I, I don't okay. know because I'm. I know that I have like a like, especially when I go home like I have a heavy like southern draw, so I think like uh, vowels. You know, we lay heavy on them sometimes. We, we lay heavy on them. <laughs> <laughs> ah, and you, yeah. I mean, so obviously um, we are cooking Brunswick stew today, yes. which was a surprise to be found. There are not a lot of real Southern recipes in this cookbook. Um, I assume that's something you have eaten before. What, Brunswick stew? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Brunswick stew, my dad makes Brunswick stew. He doesn't do uh, pork, um, so he'll, he'll put like, like turkey or something in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my first actual forte into Brunswick stew was when I was cooking at a restaurant in Georgia. We ended up doing like a barbecue competition, and the chef was um, wanted to do every single category you could possibly like compete in. Okay. He decided he was going to try and hit all of them, and one of them was Brunswick stew. And so that was like it was a day of just eating a lot of Brunswick stew. Um, was like my first like real deep dive into it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and you and you obviously had a family that cooked. Your grandmother was a great cook. Did she, did she teach you where? How did you learn to cook? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. My grandmother um, was the cake lady. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, I no, like... I do know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I know who that lady is for in town. Yeah, so she was the cake lady. Um, one thing, my dad was in the military, and one thing that was a real blessing was when we. We're in, stationed in Georgia for like four years, and I'd say like for me personally, like maybe fourth grade through eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And on the weekends, we were in Valdosta, and my parents, my my grandparents were in Albany, and so it's only like an hour and some change drive. Um, and so every weekend we would go up, and it was just the smell, you know what I mean? Like walking, like being a kid, like getting out of the, jumping out of the car, running up the driveway, into the door, and you bust open the door and it's just that smell of like baked goods mm-hmm. of like coconut like uh, like a coconut pie or um like a caramel cake like it's like something that's like etched into your brain even if now if I like walk my grandmother's past but like walking to that house there's still like nothing's baking but that memory still comes back mm-hmm. you know what I mean did she do that the chocolate layer cake with all the thin layers yeah and the caramel cake like that too and she did like she was known for her pound cake and one thing that's funny like when she passed when she passed we um lost possession of the house um after a little while um we like my family did we were my immediate family was in italy at the time Mm -hmm. because my dad was stationed um when the house was lost so everything that was in the house was gone and so they didn't have any of her recipes anymore and like my dad has dedicated his life to like trying to like nail that pound cake. He does oh, no. a pretty good job of like having like one of the best pound cakes. Like I promise you, his peach cobbler and his pound cake, like at every event, anything that happens, everybody's like, can you bring this? And I don't get anywhere near near it. When I go to an event, sometimes I'll try to do the pound cake and mm-hmm. people love it. But for me, like I know it's like, mm, it's good, but it's not, it's not, not my grandmother's. Yeah. So you also lived in Italy. Where else? Where else in the world? Oh, I mean that's probably like the biggest and the fanciest one. Okay. Everything else was like stateside. I lived in Alaska for a little bit. Um, I lived in Georgia twice, Texas, 
And then, of course, like New York. Oh, I moved to California for a little bit in my, my adult years. Okay. Yeah. And, and how did that influence? So obviously, like, you had a ton of different food influences. Mm-hmm. What were those? I mean, what did you eat growing up? What was family meal time in Italy and in Georgia? Um, <laughs> I, I'd say um, I, did, I, did, I do have working, or I did have, they're both retired now, but I like working parents. Okay. And so growing up in the 90s, I was like a total latchkey kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so mealtime was very processed. Like the first things I can remember like cooking like at the house with my folks was probably like thinking I was top chef, like mixing a can of peas and a can of corn together and throwing okay. like some pepper in it. It was real fancy, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> box mac and cheese, TV dinners, a lot of, I'm not going to like, I think that was like a lot of fast food too, like honestly. So that definitely has a, like a big influence on where I went with food mm-hmm. because like all of a sudden when I started cooking like in restaurants that were actually cooking real food, um, really made it, this one guy, Jason Scarbo, had a huge impression on me because he was trying to start like a farm to table movement in South Georgia, in Statesboro. And this was in Statesboro. Okay. Yeah. At, when you were at uh, Georgia Southern yeah. University. Yeah. Did yeah, yeah. call out for all our South Georgia <laughs> listeners. Right. And so he was like trying to start a farmer's, farmer's market, you know, and like actually going out to farms. Like he took me with him everywhere. And um, like going out to farms and cooking like on farms, and that was like so such an eye-opening experience to me. And like for the first times, getting my hands like like into the soil and like tasting something like straight out of the ground. And so it's like, what else in my life have I been eating like my entire existence that I don't know what it's actually supposed to taste like? Because like before, I'd never liked tomatoes until I had tomatoes that were like had gone through like a season and were like actual tomatoes that came from somebody's farm that was taken care of. Yeah, that was actually the example on the tip of my tongue. I hated yeah. salads. I hated tomatoes. We had yeah. piggly wiggly tomatoes. Right. We, we were not. My mom grows them now. She did not grow them. <laughs> she did not grow them when we were growing up, and they were they were garbage. Yeah. <laughs> like mealy and like they taste like water. Like what is this? The skin is extra tough. Like. There's, there's like no love in it. There's nothing inspirational about that. So you go from, you graduated from college with business admin. Yes. Yes, we talked about that. And into culinary school at the Culinary Institute of America. True. Yeah. And having all of these, having all of these experiences, figuring out food, and then you go to like the temple of ingredients. That was the whole point, right? Like that's where you go after this because. Um, so Blue Hill at Stone Barns. That's true. When I was like trying to figure out whether or not I was actually going to go to culinary school, because I was like a little, it was I was intimidated, you know, like being in Georgia, moving to New York, not knowing anyone, not having any family, and I was uh, reading a book. Uh, it was called Chef Stories, and like the second person in it was Dan Barber, and he just kind of um, was talking about his ideas of food and what it could be, and um, this juxtaposition to like all these other famous chefs who would go across the world to find the best ingredients. He was just like, if I can't find the best ingredient here, then I'll create the best ingredient here. Um, and that was just like a completely different way of thinking. And it was like, that's the the like the train of thought that I want to follow. So Blue Hill at Stone Barns, yep. Temple of Fine Dining kind of in New York uh, and also nationally. You've internationally. Got, it was inter- little, you're right, yeah. internationally. Best 50. You've taken quite a journey with food, milady. From, <laughs> from like 
corn and peas out of a can yeah, to like cooking it. farm to table in <laughs> in Statesboro, Georgia of all yeah. places. Yeah. CIA. So you but you had a pretty profound moment where you were like fine dining isn't where I need to be right now. That's true. And you had cooked it untitled as well at the Whitney. I did front of house. You did front of house there. Because I've had my moment of like, what am I doing with my life? My last like almost year at Blue Hill was back and going back and forth between Blue Hill Stone Barns and Blue Hill, New York. Um, And I just had this evening where uh, Blue Hill, the restaurant is actually like down, like on like a basement level. I had finished service like was going went through the curtains, opened the doors and like walked up like six six stairs and the streets were flooded with people yelling, I can't breathe and hands up don't shoot because of um, Eric Gardner had been murdered. And like you couldn't you couldn't walk, you know what I mean? And it was such a, like a visceral thing. And I took a deep breath and I walked back down those stairs and back through that door and opened those curtains. And there was low lights and people laughing and like cheering and like having this amazing time and like spending my rent money on Wednesday. And (laughs) and it was just like, what am I doing? Like, who who am I feeding? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love like the razzle dazzle of fine dining. I love like the extravagance, the going over the top making things shine but and, like and there's a lot of important work in sustainability being right. done it's not like it's without cause or, or mission right great stories 100% and highlighting people who have not been highlighted um, like farmers you right. know what I mean but it was just like if I have all these amazing ingredients and the people who like really need them to survive um, will never have access to them what am I doing if I'm cooking at a restaurant that's like my where my parents go for like a once in a lifetime experience like for their 35th wedding anniversary that's amazing for to like be able to be able to be a part of that for them and for it to mean so much to them but like nobody else in my family can afford to eat here and it it just kind of hit me hard especially because like being the only a uh, black person in that restaurant, like front or back, like there was nobody I could talk to about what I was There's feeling. Nobody, there was no one else. Nope, no, no. Sorry. She's trying to think really yeah, hard. No. <laughs> I was like, wait, maybe there was. No, there wasn't. And it was just, I wasn't doing well at that point, like mentally, emotionally, and there was like no outlet for that. Like I don't, there was nobody I could talk to. Like immediately, I went, there was all of a sudden. I just looked up and there was. Nobody. I say white people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I just, I had to like jump ship at that point. You know what I mean? Like, um, I couldn't do like 16 hour days anymore. You know, it wasn't, I just didn't have it in me. At least in, don't, that's a lie. Because, you know, two years later, I would be back to working 20 hours a day. Right. But, (laughs) but emotionally, emotionally, I just didn't have it. And so I stepped away from fine dining. And you took a giant leap. I did. Physically across the uh, the country. I have a thing for just like packing six duffel bags and moving across the country. So what is the crazy thing you did with Pico House? Yeah. I moved across the country. I'd been collaborating with some friends who actually I met at Blue Hill on a food truck. And 
I moved to LA um, and we opened Pico House, which was our attempt to make, you know, everything that we had learned at Blue Hill Mm -hmm. um, more accessible, like easier, like all like... I saw like rice bowls. Yeah, whole grain bowls. Whole grain bowls. Yeah, we had a mixture of like um, six like heirloom grains. We did all of our own like curing, pickling, fermenting, smoking, everything ourselves. As, a, as an outlet creatively, but also as a social justice mission. You know, I think looking back on it, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I was social justice, like, oriented. Like, I, for, for me, it was that. And I wanted to push to be in less affluent neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But because we couldn't make as much money there, the rest of my team wasn't excited about going to those places and didn't put any value in going to those places. Ultimately, I mean, Pico House did really well. Um, we'd hit all the, like, LA's best of lists, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my team members got, like, Zag at 30 under 30. We were, you know, doing movie premieres. We were doing really well, and there were people who wanted to invest. But then what it looked at, when you, we looked into opening opening a brick and mortar, you know, we had paid back all the loans. Like, we were debt-free. Like, there, we didn't own any, owe anybody anything. Um, and we all wanted to take it in different directions. And we had definitely burned ourselves out. And so it was pretty easy to like, be like, okay, let's dissolve this. Like, let's, yeah. let's break it loose. A great experiment, right? Yeah, for sure. And you don't get that kind of experience, like, unless you do it yourself. Like, the amount of experience that I got there in like two years would have taken me like six to eight to do working at a restaurant in the city. So you, you say, retrospectively, that it wasn't super social justice oriented as, a, as an entity, but that's where your brain was going. That's where my time. brain was going, and that's, what we, and that's what we said. And, like, I think that maybe, you know, my business partners, like, were like, oh, this will look cool if we say it, you know, um, which is, like, yeah, which is kind of what made it difficult, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because, like, it meant something to me, but I don't know that it meant something to everybody who was on my team. You know, and there's, that's another thing, too, like, even now in nonprofits that I run into is, like, some people want to deal, do they just want to, like, have these buzzwords on their, like, brownie sash to be like, ooh, I did these things, look at me, I'm a good girl, and it's like, nah, like, you can't just put us as a, as a, this isn't, like, a feather to have in your hat, that's not what social justice is about, that's not what culinary justice is about. Um, so let's talk about that, because yeah. I think as a, as a, social justice is something that everybody's familiar with. Right. Um, culinary justice is a whole is a whole different thing, and I, I want to read a quote from you that um, it was from your time in LA. But you said, bef- uh, and this was you attended Chefs Collaborative Conference. It's a great organization. Uh, before I knew I was not alone in this war for culinary justice. Now having the ability to put faces and names to partners in the struggle, both locally and nationally, is an unquantifiable gift. So the war for culinary justice that was hard. That was hardcore. Uh, <laughs> Tell me, I mean, who lets me speak? What is who wrong? Who I do, <laughs> Cream of Caroline. <laughs> no, but so, what, what ways is food unjust in America? Food is a luxury for. It's a luxury for the rich, people who can go to the farmers market and meal prep and plan. All those things are a privilege. You're amazing. I love you. <laughs> I'm point. I'm pointing to myself. 100%. <laughs> you know, like, that's a privilege. And I don't think enough people realize how difficult it is to even have access to that. I, 
and I mean, even for me, like I didn't realize there was such like a division between the two until like I had spent so many years upstate mm-hmm. and spent so many years like eating the best of the best to like going home and be like, I'm gonna make something for my folks and going to the grocery store and not being able to find herbs, you know, or like all of the veg being like wilted. Try finding couscous in Walmart and back say Georgia. There's anyway. no way. <laughs> but you try to find like real grits up here though. Impossible. I have some of the, I have some from the farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a privilege. You know, you can go to the farmer's market. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, in your, so your work at BCCC, there I did it properly. Nicely done. Addresses a, a few specific parts of food injustice. Obviously, you're not covering the whole, the whole span of it, but it's... We're trying to, actually. Are you? We really are. Like, we're doing everything from, like, joining up with other um, organizations to, like, you know, push back in grocery stores for more transparency, for fresher ingredients in our free time, you know, like nothing we're getting paid for, like the things we're doing on the side. One of the things that kills me is like when you go into, when you go into like a place like Brownsville, so, where... So, so, and also like, I don't, not to interrupt, but tell, tell us about Brownsville. Brownsville is super dope as a place. It's in Brown, it's in Brooklyn. It um, has a lot of culture. It has so much history. But yeah, uh, Brownsville is amazing um but it it has been neglected like as as like as a place where people live and exist and the brownsville community culinary center was an answer um to an ask you know um our co-founder lucas denton went spent like two and a half years walking around brownsville going to like all the schools all the churches all the boards of nonprofits every committee could and asking them people of Brownsville what they thought they needed and they said we needed jobs we need um, education and we need decent food and so Brownsville Community Culinary Center was like the answer to that Mm -hmm. the answer to that ask and so I mean um, aside from like joining forces to like try to hold grocery stores accountable who and if you don't understand like what I'm saying like the grocery stores in Brownsville are not great um, they sell expired food, they sell spoiled food, they'll sell, um, and like at a high price on top of that, you know what I mean? No, um, I don't. I'm that's, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's, I had, right. no, I had no idea. Right. Um, they do a thing where like, they don't mark the prices on like half the items in the grocery store so that when, the, um, people like whenever like the first of the month rolls around, um, and people like get their checks in like from the government Mm -hmm. um they can charge a higher price they'll like change the price you know what i mean (laughs) to like and it's completely like taking advantage it's evil yeah it's Uh, (laughs) grocery margins are like notoriously tight even tighter than restaurant foods like i think three percent or something insane uh but i these people probably have super low rent compared to the rest of new york and it sounds like they're yeah price gouging on maybe not so high quality, like like low quality like trash ingredients. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and then also like um, I saw I re- recently read a study that said like in those types of areas and like low income neighborhoods, vegetables tend to be more expensive. 
And so, and like vegetables, like milk, bread, th- things like that mm-hmm. tend to be a little bit more expensive. Even myself, like I live in the Bronx, you know, and if I go to, to the grocery store that's closest to me, a half gallon of, they only have one option for a half gallon of organic milk and if it's $9. And then in addition to that, Are you like serious? it's going to be, it's going to be expired in like four days. That's lit. I, th- I thought Citarella was bad. I would rather go to Citarella. That's you know what crazy. I mean? Like, crazy. I would rather go to Cinderella when it comes to like feeding my kids. Like, I'd rather just like, because at least I know it's milk is not nine dollars. It's not nine. No, it's not nine dollars. You know, um, I can go to Whole Foods. You can go milk to Ronnie Brook. <laughs> like, <laughs> at the farmers market, and it's not. My kids love that butter. Um, <laughs> and it's not nine dollars anyway. So, um, so BCCC, like, it's trying. It's we're trying to like support local organizations that are pushing for those changes for more transparency okay. from those grocery stores for them to actually take I mean have like good food to like feed people I feel like whenever you're somebody who is in charge of providing nourishment for people that's going to fuel them throughout their day especially if it's young people or older people like you have a responsibility and you need to take it seriously we um were Brownsville Community Culinary Center is the first sit-down restaurant in Brownsville in 50 years um, we make all of our make all of our food from scratch. We mm-hmm. have like a mill that was donated from Anson Mills, who also donates grains to like grind grains and make our own flowers. Very cool. To like make our own biscuits that are made every day. Our Pullman loaves, our rolls, everything is made fresh daily. All of our sauces. That's one thing that's hilarious. In watching, I think my brain is all over the place right now. I'm sorry, but <laughs> what I'm not doing a great job of is like explaining. So, I mean, the Brownsville Community Culinary Center, um, it is a cafe, but it's also a culinary training center. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a training program, and it's run by, um, we have staff on site, you know, that are doing the training, but mostly the people who are in front of you and making your food are students, or we call them particip- participants, who are in the program. And so t- to be able to, like, have somebody who you know is like two generations deep of never actually having like a decent dining experience for them to be like what you can make ketchup and yeah. then to make ketchup with them and you, do you make ketchup like, yeah at the center <laughs> yeah we make, make like a sambal ketchup like we make all of our own hot sauces everything is made there and from scratch and like they get to see that what that entire process is like but then you're also talking about people who may not have kitchens or like when you talk about like how unfair it is for there's buildings like in that you know in that NYCHA housing that you know their gas has been off for three months how are you supposed to feed your family when you don't have a kitchen like you don't your kitchen doesn't work on top of like not being able to afford like actual like great ingredients like then I can't cook in my like in, in, own, my own home. in your home like what do you, it doesn't matter if you even like hand me these ingredients if I can't cook them then what is that? And so we've also, the Brownsville Community Culinary Center has also tried to address that. We're launching a ready-to-eat program. Okay. Um, it's meals that have been created with dietary, people who have, like, dietary restrictions. Mm-hmm. Not I'm not talking about, um, like, gluten, no gluten or no dairy, but people who have, like, diabetes or hypertension. Right. With those restrictions in mind, how to, so people who can, like, go somewhere and actually pick up a meal that is 
made for them. The price point of them is about $7. At the Brownsville Community Culinary Center, we offer people who have the snack card, Mm -hmm. if they show it to us, we can't take it, but we'll give them a 50% discount on their meal and we'll eat that cost. You know what I mean? So if you have that card and you can come in at three and get like a decent meal for three fifty, that makes a big difference in people's a, lives. A huge difference. Um, we also, um, aside from like we we train sixty kids, six not sixty kids, sixty adults, sixty participants right. have graduated from the program. Right. So we've in we've had about about a hundred go through the program. Okay. Sixty of them are like placed and working in the field. Um, successfully um, have had jobs are like being mentored by some of the most amazing people um, in the industry. Is that what's what surprised you most about the work? I mean that sounds like that's one of the more uplifting things is on a very individual level I mean that's where it's easiest to see it building someone's confidence training them placing them in an amazing kitchen in New York but what are some of the other moments of joy? Brownsville itself, people coming into the space and being like, oh, like I didn't know anything like this existed in Brownsville, or this could be in the middle of Manhattan, like why is this here? And it's like, it's here because Brownsville deserves this, like they should have this, they should have access to it. To see, I do a lot of elementary school tours Mm -hmm. and visits, which is amazing. Um, to talk to them about food and for them to see that this exists in their neighborhood, for them to be able to like come in and speak to our chefs and then also giving our participants a chance to like show off and like educate the, the like young kids as well is really fun and inspiring because they're like balls of joy and then they always sit down in the dining room after the tours and after like all the questions and everything like that and like have lunch and it's just infectious like mm-hmm. they're, they're having a good time and like the whole place just lifts I mean it's already a place where you have all these students um all these people who have been overlooked who are finding themselves and like finding their voice and like learning that they have worth and like learning the skill these skills and like how to go out into the world and be successful successful that mm-hmm. they can have success that their stories have value so like that's very palpable when you walk into the space and then to have all these kids there as well it just kind of like lifts it up to another level and then like the community like when you whenever because there's like a huge the glass front like whenever people see that 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 there's something that energy in there yeah they it brings more people in right and we get to connect with more of our community but the program itself is for people who you know, may have been overlooked because of things that happened in their background. We have people who, you know, um, have gone from, like, living in shelters to, like, being placed, housing, like, in, like, Long Island and who still, like, make that commute to come in every single day to be there on time. It's it's amazing. Um, And then for that person to be able to, like, get a job that pays, like, a living wage and offers benefits solely because we have gone out to find people that in the industry that connect with like what we're trying to do and they are willing to like open up a space for this person we were talking about evan earlier Mm -hmm. evan is one of those people who like Uh -uh. evan sorry evan is an amazing chef at egg restaurant in brooklyn he like 
purposely like opens up a space and will like protect that space for this person to like be vulnerable to learn and grow and the industry the industry depends on it and and, and that's like some of the conversations that people are having right now is people want to create diverse teams they don't know how to do it people need well you're like eh. people 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 say that they do people say that they do they're not taking any most people are taking very few actions to right. actually accomplish it and people also there's like a severe there's a severe labor shortage also of dedicated cooks but you're like not really if you look in the right places and you train people and you look in your community and you know we were it was JJ Johnson we were talking about earlier yeah. hey literally went to a, you know a homeless shelter next door to his you know his last restaurant and found people who could do specific jobs and they did them well and like created value so pe- people are out there yeah and JJ he he's hired participants like from us, like at his restaurants, and even like if he doesn't have space at his restaurants when he goes to go do the U.S. Open, he'll take our students with him. Right. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely, this is what we need. These are people who are going to like give exposure, give a chance, but also pay them to do that for their time. Right. Let's talk about that also. You know what I mean? Like, we, this is also a part of that justice. Don't ask me to come out here for exposure and opportunity. Put cash in my pocket when I come out here. You know what I mean? Like, show me that my time actually has value to you. What you were saying earlier about people being like, oh, I want diversity. I got to like, you gave me a platform. Okay. I'm about to use it. Great. I got a real problem um, when people say, let's talk about, like, I want to do diversity. Let's be diverse. Mm-hmm. And then they go, okay, I am surrounded. Like, if I am like a cisgendered white man and I'm surrounded by cisgendered white men, like, I need to, to bring on diversity, I'm gonna bring on a woman, okay? And that's cool, thanks, but if you bring on a white woman, I see what you were trying to do, I think, but that's not really diversifying, especially if she has the exact same background as you. No, especially if it's not. just, you know, Stephanie it's like a, from it's like a little, It's like a little salt. <laughs> I don't even know. But no spice. I think it's, I think it's actually, I feel like it's, it's like, putting parsley on the plate it's like okay cool you know what I mean <laughs> like we this is garbage to right. show <laughs> right <laughs> but then also like if you're like okay cool you're right like I need to bring in somebody who's a person of color and you bring in you know a person of color and they have the exact same background that's not diversity no we're talking about age right we're talking right. about race we're talking about sexual orientation upbringing and the socioeconomic status yeah if everybody in the room can afford to eat here then it's not diversity i understand that i am am a lot of people's like reach for diversity and i appreciate that i am a diverse person i will check a lot of and boxes but i also have two degrees you have enough money to pay nine dollars for your kids milk i still can't get over I, that i do not have enough money to pay nine dollars for my kids milk um, they didn't get that milk, bro. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, y'all have an oatmeal and it's going to be made with water. Anyway, um, I have, I have participants who are stellar, like fast, fast learners, mm-hmm. like completely reliable, like will show up and people who want to get somewhere and stay somewhere for a minute, not somebody who's like, oh, I want to move different restaurants every year so I can like grow my right. experience. No, none of that. People who are just like, I need an income. I need like somewhere I'm going to be respected and mm-hmm. I want to learn. 
But they'll be like single moms with three kids, which means that their hours... They need flexibility. I need nine to four. I need nine to three, Monday through Friday. Right? So if I can... I have... Right now, I have like three people like that who people... Who trail at jobs, who people go, oh my God, yes, I want to hire you. And then they go, this is the schedule I have. And they go... And the person who's hiring is like, I can't do that. Do you really want diversity? Do you like, really want a working mom? Do you really? Right. What's the problem here? I, you said you needed hands. I just gave you hands. This person is standing in front of you. She needs a job. What's the problem here? Do you have to have somebody, if you're only giving people the opportunity, who have open flexibility with their schedule, which is like that's a, a which, certain kind of person. Which is like a 25-year-old or a man. Right. Or a childless woman like myself. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, you're looking at a very specific category. Yeah. But I'm telling you, like, I have a person who will stay with you for the next five years if you can figure out in your brain how to just give her nine to four on Monday through Friday. Prep work. Right. You're tripping. You don't want diversity. No. You okay. don't want to change anything. Thank you for that. <laughs> like, you don't. You just want to... No, wanna, it, they want the idea. You right? want the idea. You don't You don't want to do anything. Like, I have this answer for you right here, right now. You can't just keep screaming, I have a labor shortage, and then not look at what you're doing wrong. Right. Right. And just yell about, like, kids coming out of culinary school not caring or not wanting to work hard or wanting to, like, bounce around. Stop picking from the same pool. Yeah. What's the insanity saying, right? You keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. You're stupid. It's like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. I don't, just... So that that's what chefs that's what chefs can do. One thing that chefs can do. Absolutely. How uh, how can the public and our dear listeners contribute, uh, give back, find out more information? B triple C. Um, we got a website, the Melting Pot Foundation USA. Uh, dot org. Okay. Uh, there is a donate button. 100%. You can click and you can donate straight in um, to the program. Uh, we are a nonprofit, uh, 501-3C. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you have, if you're in the city and you have like some like celebration lunch work thing that you're doing, like come have it at Brownsville Community Culinary Center. You know, like okay. have... Have that day there. If you decide like you're doing like some kind of like catering gig for an event, like we have a catering team. Okay. Head us up. Like we'll we'll come out. You know what I mean? Like. Well, I think that's a good. I think we're ready for our. I think we're ready for our meal to share together. Yeah, I love snacks. Uh, literally everything but the chicken came from the farmers market. It's a beautiful yeah. season. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. I love farmers market. It's like my favorite date. Like. Like in the middle of the day right now, um, my partner and I have a lot of free time together-ish, mm-hmm. you know, her time is flex, my time is flex, and we know this is like a short window, we'll definitely, like, that's one of my favorite things to do with her is like, just walk the farmer's market, so. You don't have to today, it's all, I'm just going to feed you instead. You're going to feed me the farmer's market, I'm I appreciate it. farmer's market. <laughs> all right, let's do it. All right, cool. All right, listeners, we uh, stumbled upon an amazing find today in my hometown of Baxley, Georgia. We are at 341 Antiques with Valerie Thornton. Thank you so much for having us for a few minutes this morning. You're very welcome. We're glad you came. Uh, So I just wanted to hand the mic over to Valerie because I learned an incredible amount about Pyrex. Awesome. This morning through her. 
ridiculous selection and collection of antique Pyrex. So, Valerie, take it away. Okay. Pyrex was introduced in 1915. It started as a laboratory um, glass for experiments and whatnot. And they made it in clear glass that has, um, if you're looking at the oldest Pyrex, it has a yellowish tint, sometimes a blue tint, in the clear. In the 40s, they introduced the color patterns with the primary colors. And then they went through many, many, many patterns, more than you could count. Um, there's hundreds of patterns. They did sets where they did full-on sets with Cinderella bowls, mixing bowls, casserole dishes, lasagna dishes, fridge sets, and then they did a series of promotional bowls that they put out different years for different things that ranged from, you know, hearts, some with flowers, to Christmas bowls that they did just in the casserole dish only. So. And so tell me, I uh, <clears throat> purchased a few uh, dishes today and I'd love to learn more and to know more a little bit about that pattern in particular. Okay. Well, Pyrex was owned by Corn and Ware Incorporated, and in 1971, they came out with a beautiful pattern. Now, chickens are hot right now. Everybody loves chickens, and the set that Miss Caroline purchased is called Friendship. That's one of the more popular lines of Pyrex, and she actually got a very pretty um, lasagna pan and a casserole dish, one of the bigger casserole dishes that's actually part of the Pin Dutch set. Um, the Friendship came out in 1971, and it is known for its chickens, not to be confused with the later pattern that Cornenware actually put out with um, Country Festival, but it's also known um, as the Dutch Birds. Sometimes it's called Dutch Birds, and okay. it's the Pin Dutch. Okay, the Pin Dutch Birds. Now, <laughs> what is the most expensive piece of Pyrex that you have in the shop right now? Just to give us an idea of like the collectability. The most expensive piece in the shop right now is actually a set. Now this is my opinion. It's the Pin Dutch set and the Pin Dutch set in the Friendship consists of the big casserole dish like you got, mm -hmm. the lid for the casserole dish, and then it has an underplate that it sits on. And that set, we've sold several of those complete sets. Then um, some of the most rare that we've had is the gold um, Amish butter print. The Amish butter okay. print has the, the farmer and has chickens on it as well. Which is teal, turquoise yes, it for comes the listeners. In, okay. Yeah, comes in turquoise and white, pink and white. And I had never seen the gold and white until it came in. And the pink and white is my favorite, but I've actually never seen it in person. It's just that rare. Okay, so if listeners want to uh, stock up with some beautiful vintage Pyrex wear. How can they find you either online or in person? We are on Facebook. We are 341 Antiques and More and we have um, we take pictures as new stuff comes in so check the dates of the pictures. Um, they can send us messages on the message board and we do ship. Okay, thank you so much Valerie. You're I really welcome. appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Lunch is served. Brunswick stew. Brunswick stew. People in Virginia apparently claim it. Um, so do the good people of Brunswick, Georgia. Right. No, this is chicken, not pork. Okra. It is a little slimy. If you're not down with the okra slime, this could be offensive to you. But I love okra slime. Yeah, I'm totally for it. I don't feel like it's fair that it's called slime. 
It's like that. It's like my least favorite favorite word. Musil- mucilaginous. <laughs> <laughs> which is yes. re- which is truly a terrible word, but yeah. Mm. But I'm. It's got a little viscosity to it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Definitely some thickening agent. So, um, is this at all even? We were saying earlier, not exactly what I remember. A little bit more subtle. Yeah. Because for it sure. does not have ketchup. Yeah, I think mine were always um, the ones I was introduced to were like barbecue sauce based. Which makes no sense. Which <laughs> it's like you have all of and all of these ingredients, and then you're just like, oh, let me dump in some. Let me dump in some barbecue sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Which is baby rays. Let's go. Which, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet baby rays! I am so glad that you did not visit my pot of soup today. But I am most grateful that Mavis J could share more about her work at B Triple C. And if you're not in New York City or can't donate, Mavis J also says you can fight food injustice in small ways every day in your community. Support people who don't look like you. Support local nonprofits. Use privilege to open doors for other people. Like take someone as your plus one to an event where they may not otherwise be included. Give up your power and your platform without any caveats. Bring new people into your life and be willing to hear other people's experiences and take them at their word. So thanks for listening. To me, Mavis, and all the good words. Keep it creamy, y'all.